come in a sort of circular movement back to Eccles Street. We were here this morning to find out how Mr. Bloom went out, left his house and bought a kidney for his breakfast and the rest. To make it absolutely authentic, we've come back here at between half twelve and one in the morning. It is detailed where they do walk. They walk up Lower Gardner Street, Middle Gardner Street, onto Mountjoy Square, turn left and go down as far as Temple Street, turn right on the far side of the road, cross diagonally the circus that's in front of George's Church and then go to 7 Eccles Street and they talk of different things on the way, including ecclesiastical celibacy. They also discuss Stephen's collapse. Bloom naturally blames it on lack of food, tiredness. Stephen, for some reason, blames it on the reapparition of a matutinal cloud. Perceived by both from two different points of observation, Sandy Cove and Dublin. We remember that this cloud crossed over the tower early in the morning and it reminded him of his mother's death and how he used to sing Fergus' song about love's bitter mystery to his mother. And also when it appeared over Dorset Street when Bloom was coming back with his kidney, it brought a feeling of desolation to him. But I don't know how Stephen could say that. Anyway, it's one of these things I don't understand. They arrive at the house and Bloom has no key. He remembers again that he had reminded himself to get it in the morning and had again forgotten to get it so he still has no key. So both Stephen and Bloom are keyless. Bloom's decision? A stratagem. Resting his feet on the dwarf wall, he climbed over the area railings, compressed his hat on his head... Bloom climbed over the railings, gets into the area, into the kitchen through the area door, lights a fire, fills the kettle, washes his hands, and it then turns out Stephen isn't very fond of water, but according to the book, Stephen's last bath was in October 1903. Bloom looks round the, the kitchen, sees the contents of the dresser, milk, a quarter a pint. He says a noggin of milk, which is a, a quarter a pint, very little milk. Two betting tickets, which are torn off. Then he remembers the Ascot Gold Cup, where he has heard of it. He heard of it in Barney Kiernan's, Davy Burns. Nosey Flynn, that was. And then he remembers that he got the throwaway from the YAMCA man, of course. He makes cocoa. Relinquishing his symposiacal right to the moustache cup of imitation Crown Derby presented to him by his only daughter, Millicent, Millie, he substituted a cup identical with that of his guest. In order to not make Stephen uncomfortable in any way, he just uses identical cups. And Stephen is abstracted at this time, of course, half drunk. But um, Bloom typical thinks that he's composing poetry while he's silent. And Bloom himself recalls how Mr. Gunn of the Gaiety wanted him to write a comic song for a pantomime entitled... If Brian Baru could but come back and see old Dublin now. And for various reasons, Bloom didn't do it. We then go on and we find out what their ages are. Bloom is 38 and that Stephen is 22, and we discover the links between them. They had met in the lilac garden of Matt Dillon's house in 1887, when Stephen was a little boy, and then in Breslin's hotel, when Stephen, still quite young, had invited Bloom back to dinner. And, of course, Stephen's father being with him was rather embarrassed, and, of course, seconded the invitation, and Bloom knew 
that his father was embarrassed. So he, of course, turned down the invitation and everyone knew what was going on. Did their conversation on the subject of these reminiscences reveal a third connecting link between them? Mrs Reardon, a widow of independent means... She lived as Dante in a portrait from 1888 to 1891 with the Daedalus, and then she was in the City Arms Hotel and the Blooms were living there. Bloom appears not to be a Jew. His grandmother is a Hegarty, his mother is a Higgins... He was baptised three, three times. times. By the Reverend Mr Gilmer Johnson, M.A., alone in the Protestant Church of St Nicholas without Coombe. By James O'Connor, Philip Gilligan and James Fitzpatrick, together under a pump in the Village of Swords. And by the Reverend Charles Malone, C.C., in the Church of the Three Patrons, Rathgar. It turns out that Stephen was baptised by Father Malone in the Church of the Three Patrons in Rathgar as well. So there's that sort of a connection to them. As to their interests, Bloom seems to have a scientific bent, for what it's worth, and Stephen has an artistic bent. Of course, Bloom starts thinking of ads for Healy's, etc. Stephen's reaction to the ads is to have a girl sitting in a room looking out the window and write something on a piece of paper, and what she wrote was... Queen's Hotel. Queen's Hotel. Queen's Hotel. What suggested scene was then reconstructed by Bloom? And, of course, this is the name of the hotel in Ennis, which Bloom's father bought and in which he committed suicide on the 27th of June in 1886, and, of course, the anniversary of which Bloom is going to go down to Ennis, and that's why he can't go on the tour with Molly. Stephen then reiterates the parable of the plums. Described by the narrator as a Pisca site of Palestine or the parable of the plums. Bloom, while he doesn't quite understand thinks that he can exploit the talent that Stephen obviously has. Things change again, and they think, what should men do with their wives? How can they entertain them when they're not there, when they've nothing to do? Card games, music, and that sort of thing. And then talk goes on to the similarities between the Irish and the Jews. And Stephen speaks some Irish. Shul, shul, shul arun, shul gasucker agus shul gacun. And Bloom speaks some Hebrew. Kifelach. And then Stephen, he seemed, doesn't seem to have any feeling at all, sings the most anti-Semitic song there possibly could be called Little Harry Hughes. She took a penknife out of her pocket and cut off his little head. Bloom is too good-natured to object to it, but the young girl in the song is all dressed in green, and he remembers that Millie did dress in green, so there's a sort of connection himself of the idea of Millie killing any little boy is anatomy to it, as well. What proposal did Bloom, diambulist, father of Millie, sonambulist, make to Stephen, noctambulist? Bloom then invites Stephen to stay at the night, he thinks that Stephen being in the house would help Molly to forget Boylan and she could learn proper Italian pronunciation from Stephen. And then we hear that Stephen's mother died on the 26th of June, 1903. That even brings us back to the first episode in the tower in which he's in mourning for his mother and is still being haunted by her. And it's almost a year since her death. Bloom returns the money that he had taken from Stephen in Bella Cohen's, £1.7 shillings. They plan to exchange Italian and singing lessons 
And then Bloom remembers that he was at a circus in the rotunda and a clown claimed that he was Bloom's son. Of course, he's thinking of relationships and you can't always choose who your father or who your son is. Was the clown Bloom's son? No. And also then Bloom remembers having had a florin, two-shilling piece. He marked it, spent it, and wondered would he ever get it back. Had Bloom's coin returned? Never. They went into the garden, they urinate together, look at the stars and hear the church bells. Stephen remembers his mother and Bloom hears hi-ho as he did early in the morning. Hey-ho, hey-ho. Stephen then goes off into the night. That's the end of Stephen. And Bloom goes back into the house and finds that the furniture has been moved. Now, this is another mystery. Who moved the furniture? Bloom takes off his collar and his waistcoat and does his accounts. I won't even start talking about the accounts because of all sorts of arguments about them. He unlocks a drawer and finds things like Millie's copybooks from his mother's brooch, three letters from Martha Clifford, to which he adds the new one. In the second drawer, it's an insurance policy and £900 in bonds. Now, that is a huge amount of money. And it's quite a surprise. We, yes. we didn't think that no, we were no. so well off. Oh, no. Well, I mean, the thing is that Molly is scrimping and saving and all the rest. He could have bought uh-huh. Seven Eccles Street and have money left over. Did he get it as a result of his father? We just don't know. He had the card on which his father changed his name from Virag to Bloom and a card at the Queen's Hotel. He gets into bed and feels the imprint of boiling there and crumbs from the potted meat. I think that's the ultimate insult. <laughs> <Yes>. Crumbs <laughs> in the bed. <laughs> and then there's a list of Molly's admirers. So I think these are people who looked on Molly with lust, but yep. they had no connection with her. It's been quite an issue a long time ago because mm. some readers took this literally as though Molly had had mm. so many actual lovers and would yeah. have been very promiscuous. And it's quite obvious that it is something like whoever cast an eye on her or yes. whatever troubled Bloom at one time or other. Or That's other. right, yeah. Of course, he knows about Boylan. And he thinks, will he divorce her? Well, not yet. Would it have been possible? Oh, yes, yes, there was divorce here. Uh, I think up to the 1920s. Yes, under the British, of course, there was divorce, yeah. And, of course, he said he could bring a suit for damages. That is a possibility, too. And then it turns out that he first met Boylan in 1903. And, of course, he's quite satisfied in one way, insofar as... He thinks the tour is going to be a success and the profits are going to be divided. Then? He kisses Molly's backside. He kissed the plump, mellow, yellow, smellow melons of her rump on each plump, melonous hemisphere in their mellow, yellow furrow with obscure, prolonged, provocative, melon-smellonous oscillation. He tells her of his day, carefully censored, and he says he was at Leia and he had dinner in Wynne's Hotel, which still happily is with us in Abbey Street. We later find out, just as he knows about Boylan, Molly sees through his story and just doesn't believe it. And that, more or less, is the end of it. You gave a very detailed summary, and rightly so, because this is the chapter that gives us more information than any other. It's the second longest chapter, too. Issue. Deceased, 9 January 1894, 
aged 11 days. There remained a period of 10 years, 5 months and 18 days during which carnal intercourse had been incomplete. Without ejaculation. What has to be said here, of course, is you extracted this from the shape of the chapter, which is quite unique in the book, because it's a series of questions and answers, as in a catechism, Joyce referred to. Uh, also, certain school books were done in this sort of question, or it's, in a way, in part like an exam. And the language is rather abstract. It's a chapter that tries to be informative, precise, everything in the right place, and so it's arranged, more or less chronologically, but by categories. We start saying, where did they go? What parallel courses did Bloom and Stephen follow returning? And you give a detailed list of the streets. That is so confusing that anyone, not in Dublin and even those, <laughs> don't know. What we are not told is that they're walking upwards. That's where they slow down and things like that. Then it is what they discussed, where they agreed. So it is categorized into several parts. And this is a chapter where we learn most things, factual things, uh, irrespective of, say, the value we would place on them. It seems to be a kind of totally neutral, objective consciousness in a level voice and everything is treated the same way in the list of topics by the way you have the roman catholic church and then exposed corporation buckets now certainly they're not exactly of the same importance in this universe and the effect of electricity on leaves and think, trees think like, yeah so <laughs> totally and so it's, it seems without regard of what we would think and it's also a voice that's without emotion. Did Bloom discover common factors of similarity between their respective like and unlike reactions to experience? Both were sensitive to artistic impressions, musical in preference to plastic or pictorial. Both preferred a continental to an insular manner of life, a cisatlantic to a transatlantic... And it has, in fact, to be extracted, as you did, what exactly happens, and we don't always know just what happened. Yes, uh, well, I have to say that that's uh, what I think happened. Yeah. And, and oh, yes. I am not putting it forward as a definitive yeah. thing no, at no. all. On the whole, I, I would say uh, the same thing. Uh, on the other hand, I think you mentioned briefly that Bloom draws up a budget. I don't think he does. David, one poor kidney, three pence, one copy Freeman's Journal, one penny, one bath and gratification, one shilling and sixpence, tram fare, one penny. In memoriam, Patrick Dignam, five shillings. Two Banbury cakes, one. I penny. just believe, one but pound. we can't prove mm. this, that he thinks, oh, I've spent so much money. If he were to sit mm. down mm. and write, this would have been. Mm. By the way, we know it doesn't work out. And that's the other aspect. It tries to be exact mm. and without emotion, uh, objective, and, all, and it conspicuously fails. Mm. And it has strange uh, configurations. The ages are compared, Stephen, mm. 22, Bloom, 38, with a 16 difference that is also worked back. What relation existed between their ages? 16 years before, in 1888, when Bloom was of Stephen's present age, Stephen was six. Sixteen years after, in 1920, when Stephen would be of Bloom's present age, Bloom would be 54. In 1936, when Bloom would be 70 and Stephen 54, their ages initially in the ratio... And then the chapter goes into elaborate calculation how it would be later on, and the numbers are at the certain time wrong. That's mm -hmm. the irony yeah. of the thing. There's all this elaborate yeah. thing built up, and when it's worked out, it's mm -hmm. wrong. <laughs> yeah. So a few things are conspicuously wrong, and everything is, in a way, treated in the same 
deadpan way. It's in a very strange reading because it's abstract. Joyce called it the ugly duckling. That's one that is sort of forbidding, but can grow on you, which in, in fact it does. And here Joyce uses the essentially unique double nature of the English language, which has its native Anglo-Saxon vocabulary for ordinary use with some Scandinavian, and then it has this overlay of words derived from Latin via French, uh, science, some Greek terms, and you can always express things very politely in this abstract way. Of what did the duumvirate deliberate during their itinerary? Now, you say, what did they talk about mm. as they walked? Mm. So it is a kind of verbal over-expenditure and an abstract of pushing it away, making it neutral, taking the emotions out. Of what did the duumvirate deliberate during their itinerary? I believe, not only as a foreign reader, that even native speakers still have to translate it mentally into the language. What is a duumvirate? We are led astray because they are not city officials in a Roman uh, thing. In fact, they have nothing to say in their city. But, but it just boils down to the two men, which is brought up, um, deliberate, which was originally weighing on the scales. And, uh, and itinerary is really a word a bit too much for just going half a mile or something like that. So I think there is, in this, a slight delay in understanding Equestrian perambulation. Some people wouldn't even know what it is, instead of riding on horseback or something like that. So this is a typical of the chapter. In this sense, by the way, and I keep harping on that, it is also untranslatable because in other languages you have to come out with the sensual meaning right away. Also, I can see people being very confused when they read it yep. first yep. because they haven't got the familiarity with mm-hmm. the text. Much of this chapter mm-hmm. depends on remembering what has gone before and often very small details but when you do then it's like a piece of a jigsaw suddenly the jigsaw fits into place from the information you get here i must also confess here that being an old hand at this there are so many passages where i and most others probably do not really know what's going on. Of course, scholars usually don't display their ignorance, mm. but uh, I can say that it, it really uh, worries me. I would still give one example of the need for translation. At one time, Bloom thinks, what's the worst that could happen if you were destitute and mm. a beggar and all mm. of that? And it contains the latration of... What's latration? I have I, no idea. Yeah, I see. <laughs> Even I mean, I looked in, in dictionaries... Uh, it goes on. The latration of illegitimate, unlicensed, vagabond dogs. Now, as soon as you know it's dogs, you know it's either barking or biting. Mm-hmm. It actually is an old Latin word, Italian word too, for barking. Mm-hmm. And it's only later on that you can guess what it is. And uh, I say this, that Joyce is really writing foreign English as a foreign language in this book. <laughs> All over. I mean, the Anglo-Irish aspect, mm-hmm. the slang, older forms like Old English or... Uh, mm-hmm. In this sense, Joyce has something very democratic. He writes a book that is also difficult for native speakers. Yes, Mm -hmm. we have to translate it too into everyday speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing on the factual level is Stephen seems to warm up a bit. He is more communicative than he was earlier on. They seem to have some kind of conversation. And Stephen, I wouldn't say he's very polite, certainly not with the song, but at least he does talk. You'd hardly say there's a meeting of minds, though. (laughs) You know, one question has always been, or for a long time, Bloom invites Stephen because Millie's room is available. He also would like to have Stephen 
to in a way distract Molly, perhaps from boiling. And who knows whether he hasn't got in mind something else with the daughter. Or the, mm. but, but never mind. Uh, Stephen rejects, but Bloom has all kinds of proposals. They could meet again and do this mm. and this. Will they ever meet again? We don't know. The other thing is, what does the meeting actually mean? Is it important? Is it just a casual encounter that has no consequences? Or is it of momentous significance? I'm just raising it as an issue that I don't know how to deal with. And what do you go upon? That they make water together, that they drink cocoa that has been blown up into a... a, Oh, that's And and all of that. Where is the significance? Yes, I mean, cocoa is almost turned into a mass. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. By some people. But again, again, Joyce provokes that kind of... Oh, he does. That's that's what he did. But I mean, reading it myself, to me, it's someone who's a nice person sees a friend's son in difficulties and helps him, mm-hmm. brings him home yeah. and uh, gives him a cup of cocoa mm-hmm. and then says we have to meet again sometime and discuss mm-hmm. things. That's as far as it mm-hmm. goes, as far as uh, I know. Should he meet him again, of yeah. course he'd talk mm-hmm. to him, but there doesn't seem to have been a great friendship developed there. No, I don't think so. But uh, <coughs> the other thing is, does the meeting with Bloom mean something for Stephen? Because some commentators go so far saying now Stephen having met Bloom for some reason is then able to write the kind of book in which he is um, ca- yeah. it has all been said I, I mean, yes, I'm just I, pausing I myself do not engage in such speculation but I say because other, well, what does it mean what well, does you, it all you have amount to say to? that uh, Stephen in the end is far more mannerly towards Bloom than he has been to anyone yeah. else mm-hmm. and of course he's mannerly of course to A.E. And Crawford and these mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he has to be. But here he's meeting an equal mm-hmm. and is well mannered in it. Mm-hmm. So, in that respect, Bloom has got through to him. But I think it even says in the chapter that they don't really come onto the same plane yeah. of thought, as it were. There's no, as I said earlier, meeting of mind. So. At the same time, not to forget, uh, at one time the text fuses them. Yes, by does. having <laughs> Stoom and Bleven, mm-hmm. so uh, uh, there's something. And yeah, the relative education <laughs> is compared. Substituting Stephen for Bloom, Stoom would have passed successively through a dame school and the high school. Substituting Bloom for Stephen, Bleven would have passed successively through the preparatory, junior, middle and senior grades of the intermediate and through the matriculation, first arts, second arts and arts degree course of the Royal University. Joyce calls it Ithaca, and one thing is, of course, that Odysseus returns to his Ithaca. Ithaca, by the way, is called Rocky. Somehow this is the hard rock of facts. This is very factual, and uh, it tries to be solid, give us information. We know this is partly spurious and all of that. What happens in the Odyssey, and this is, in a way, the greatest departure from it, on the return to Ithaca, which, by the way, takes up half of the Odyssey, Odysseus has to disguise himself and, and all of that. But in the end, he and his son and two servants, plus the help of Pallas Athene, they kill all the hundred and suitors. So it's a cruel kind of a revenge. Hamlet, yeah. <laughs> so the palace is strewn with corpses and has yeah. to be cleaned. Now, Joyce doesn't do that. Bloom doesn't uh, do anything. And what Joyce said is the suitors, this Boylan, are killed by the light of reason, cold reason. Well, take it or leave it. And Bloom, in fact, does think about it, and he has feelings of... Envy, jealousy, abnegation, equanimity. At the end, he chose himself as well, 
the worst things in life and what does it matter and all of that. As not as calamitous as a cataclysmic annihilation of the planet in consequence of collision with a dark sun. As less reprehensible than theft, highway robbery, cruelty to children and animals, obtaining money under false pretenses, forgery and bezel... I don't think that this equanimity is a terminal point. No. I'm sure it will trouble him again, but for the time it is. And he also thinks of what, what could you do? Revenge, a divorce, that like you said, uh, damages, <laughs> uh, or he even says, or uh, have a concealed witness or trap yes. him, which takes up the famous story in the Odyssey where Aphrodite, the most beautiful, married to Hephaestus, who is limping, cheats and goes to bed with Ares and they're trapped in, in this web and the gods laugh. So there's, a, there's an echo of that there. But here, as I say, Homerically, there's not all that much to be said and it's not of that great importance. How did they take leave one of the other in separation? Standing perpendicular at the same door and on different sides of its base, the lines of their valedictory arms meeting at any point and forming any angle less than the sum of two right angles. One interesting thing for me is Stephen leaves by the back. They go out the back mm. garden into Eccles Lane or mm. something. Mm. That's the last we see of him. We don't even know where he goes, where he no, wants to sleep. Don't. He has no place to go. No. He probably walks to sleep. Bloom, however, is back in bed and he curls up almost like a man-child in the womb, almost like mm. a baby in a fetal position. Reclined laterally, left, with right and left legs flexed, the index finger and thumb of the right hand resting on the bridge of the nose in the attitude depicted on a snapshot photograph made by Percy Apjohn, the child-man weary, the man-child in the womb. Womb? Weary? He rests. He has travelled. So Bloom becomes like a baby of fetus and, and Stephen is sent out into the world as some kind of a counter-movement. That's it. I mean, to me, Bloom goes to bed and Stephen walks out the back door. That's it. The speculation is pointless. Thank you.